Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Angles podcast. This is our last episode for season two, so I invited George Beasley from the sustainability strategy team at MFS here to interview me on what are the reflections and learnings from season two, and what are some of the things that we can carry forward into our day jobs as we move forward. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. So George, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Fish, good to be back. So yeah, keen to kick things off and delve into a few of the interesting topics and questions that you brought up with some of the guests that we maybe didn't get a chance to hear your thoughts on. So let's start with episode one. Bob Eccles. So I think he did a really good job of illuminating the state of play and the culture wars in the US. Um, Any key takeaways, thoughts or quotes that you had from that episode? What was the main thing that you walked away with? Bob really sort of elucidated for me where there's so much confusion in the culture wars and the politicization of some of these things. One of the things I took away was it's heartwarming to hear that from sort of the right or the more sort of red states that actually they're not so much anti-ESG as you might think and there's a lot of noise in the media but there's some really sensible people on both sides that are kind of working together across party lines to Mm. kind of bring forward sort of what needs to happen then you think about sort of what actually happened and transpired over the course of the year and I'm sure we'll get into but as geopolitics continued to kind of bubble away and play centre stage but you have the fallout from the Inflation Reduction Act, which we talked about a little bit on the podcast, but we didn't probably fully foresee. Actually, there's been so many, so much positive momentum in the US from some of those things. So lots of good quotes. Bob is very, very quotable. Mm. Um, So lots of things that really made me think differently about how I approach that conversation uh, and lots of interactions with US clients or US regulators or policymakers um, that we've had over the course of the year. Yeah, what do you think that we should be doing as MFS and as an industry more generally to help us move beyond the culture wars? So, Bob, as you just mentioned then, um, it's actually uh, not so much of an issue of ESG integration being a problem. So there are, I think, few investors who have a problem with integrating genuinely financially material ESG factors with the view, the only objective of delivering competitive financial returns. But because ESG is used synonymously with sustainability or sustainable investing, as you mentioned, there's a lot of confusion over what ESG means. So what do you think that we should be doing at MFS and as an industry more generally to help us get past this uh, ESG confusion? The onus is on us to be far more precise and clear in our language of what we mean and don't mean. Sometimes that can feel like it's semantics. We talk about this a lot internally, about having our own and having a clear and coherent taxonomy across the organization of how we use specific terms, what we mean by them, but also being attuned to the fact that all language evolves very rapidly and it's evolving very, very rapidly in this space. And sometimes that feeds confusion because how some groups of clients, so for example, the term ESG is very, very widespread in the US and we use maybe more sustainability as as a kind of core term in Europe and sometimes those are used interchangeably, and sometimes people mean very, very different things when they use just those two terms. So how do we be more clear? How do we be more precise in our language? I think the onus is also on us to depoliticize 
the issue and to kind of come mm. back to our core. So what is our fiduciary duty? What is long-term investing really mean? And how do we think about this as common sense as part of that? And we don't have to make it a political issue. It doesn't have to be about my beliefs on climate change or natural capital or human rights or the way that companies should do things and imposing ethics in a, in a certain way. But we can actually boil this all the way back down to what are just good long-term fundamentals and the things that we know and that we understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, and, and you know, other guests came on and talked about sort of their perspectives on, on some of those things. But I think that those are maybe some of the key things. Be, mo- be much clearer about what we are doing and our intentionality. Be much more precise in the language that we actually use and actually just boil it down to its kind of simplest form, which actually doesn't need to take on a particular color or uh, political swing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think all very valid points. So the secret question that you actually asked Mahesh was, but but I think it fits better in this episode, was what do you think is the most valid criticism of ESG? So actually of ESG. So we've just talked about how that term is used interchangeably with other forms of what can be thought of as sustainable investing. There's some criticisms of, say, positive negative screening, so ex-ante exclusions of fossil fuels. Does that really have the desired impact? Then we have impact investing uh, and then also socially responsible and values-based investing. So let's separate those for a minute and actually focus on ESG itself, uh, ESG proper, ESG integration. What do you think are the most valid criticisms of ESG? Um, Yeah, I think, and this sometimes surprises people being sort of the head of sustainability strategy that I would often stand up on stage and talk about some of the very valid criticisms that the so-called anti-ESG lobby has. Um, so I, d- I think there are several. Um, we don't know. We might not get time to talk about all of them today. Maybe sort of four or five that I think about as most prevalent across our industry. So the first is that there's a false dichotomy between sort of ESG investing and regular investing. Mm-hmm. I think... The tide is turning on that one slowly, but it is turning. So again, once you start thinking about this kind of polycrisis era that we're in, once you start thinking about the interconnectedness of the problems that we actually face and how land security, water security, food shortages, energy security play into refugee crises, hot wars, uh, the kinds of economic uh, issues that we're facing, cost of living crises, you actually start to see that to separate it out and treat it like a whole separate discipline is a false move to sort of begin with. So this kind of cottage industry that grew up around ESG being a separate or special thing Mm -hmm. is in some ways maybe gone a a little bit too far. It's a good idea. We needed it at a point in time because those things lived outside of our economic models. They they were externalities and treated as separate. We now have the compute power, the thinking, the systems thinking to be able to bring them in and now that they are in, we no longer need to keep them separate. So this false dichotomy would be one. There, there are a few others that I often think about. I think we're obsessed with measurement in our industry. And we fail the sort of Einstein test of, you know, things should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Mm. I think we've massively oversimplified and over-indexed to this idea of the single scoring of, of ESG. This idea that we could assign one rating to encompass all of the myriad factors that we should think about in sort of a fundamental. And we wouldn't accept that in any other domain of investing. And yet, as a broad industry, we run into that head first and then wonder why that's not actually resulting in a better allocation of capital mm. or value creation when we actually look and observe the, the sort of real economy. So we're metrics obsessed, measurement obsessed. 
I think the measurement can get better. I'm not saying we shouldn't measure it. I'm not saying perfect should be the enemy of the good. But I think we are oversimplifying what is often an intangible, really complex issue. And I think one of the key lessons that I've learned and reflected on over the year um, has been that sort of complex problems often need nuanced solutions. And I think that we sometimes want a kind of magic bullet or a one size sort of fits all version of it. Last one maybe I'll mention for now, and we can obviously talk about more, is the ESG industry overclaims its agency sometimes. So mm. again, a valid criticism is what is actually the limits of and the duty of your agency as a fiduciary owner of that capital? And whether that's you as what we call asset owners or an intermediary, whether you're an advisor or a pension fund or an insurance company or an endowment, or whether you're an investment manager and you're again you know, allocating that capital hopefully really well for your clients. Mm. I think sometimes we're seduced into thinking that we have the ultimate power to sort of wave a wand and vote yeah. one way and then change the entire real economy. But equally, sometimes I think we underestimate the influence that we can have through constructive dialogue and stewardship and adopting an ownership mindset of a sort of, what would it take to have a 20-year view or even a 200-year view of wanting to own something uh, for, for a very long period of time? And then some of those things become immediately obvious. So maybe I bundled up two there. One is um, the time horizon. So mm. there's a decent amount of long washing that happens in our industry. That's a phrase that I've taken from Carol Jeremiah, our president and one of my mentors. And the other is this idea of what are the limits and, and duties of our agency and making sure that we're not overclaiming what we're actually capable of doing as a financial actor, which is just one of yes. many actors in the real world that need to kind of work in concert to actually make change happen. So yeah. even we talk about this all the time, even where we're a very, very large shareholder of a particular company that we might own and we adopt that ownership mindset, we're acutely aware that we are just one shareholder, which is one stakeholder that is driving a, a force for you know change. And that we have to be careful about how we talk about our influence over what can actually mm. happen but still take that duty very, very seriously. So again, yeah. it's a nuanced position that I think we're sort of learning to take as an industry and one that hopefully I think we've occupied for quite some time. Yeah, so finding that balance between doing enough, but also realizing that finance is just one of the key pillars. You've also got government, you've got businesses themselves, and then you've got consumers. And it's not possible for us to solve every issue, but also that's not an excuse for inaction. Exactly. Okay, great. So you touched on Carol before and her idea of kind of playing the bigger game. So I think that's a good segue into episode two. So I think we always love listening to Carol talk. And this that her main message now is all about playing the bigger game. And there's a number of different parts to that. I think that there is potential for some people to misunderstand the message there. Mm. So MFS's role, our fiduciary duty, is to maximize financial returns for our clients. However, I think you, that you can square that circle with still caring about systemic issues and instead thinking more about long-term investing, even if your only goal is to maximize financial returns. But I think that some may see it initially if they don't kind of clearly hear the message as over overstepping our fiduciary duty. How do you think about the role of um, finance and the role of MFS in ensuring that we maintain stable systems and also incentivize for the long term for the end saver whilst not uh, all being clear of what our fiduciary duty is and why we're doing that? These are things that I we think about, I think about a lot. I'm not sure I've landed on a kind of concrete position that I 
so I'm still holding this opinion with conviction, but loosely, and mm. I'm still open to kind of countering evidence. The way I think about it is there's a, there has a spectrum in our industry uh, where different players will have different levels of agency, right? So to take an extreme example, the sort of MFS DC, UK DC plan uh, of its small size has almost no impact or bearing on the, re the global real yeah. economy and its ability to sort of transform that. Having said that, some of the largest asset managers in the world or some of the largest asset owners in the world definitely have an impact and have a systemic role to play and can only generate long-term returns if there is a viable system that is actually capable of generating those returns. So somewhere along that spectrum, and it's mm. a little bit like when does matter become conscious kind yeah. of a question, somewhere along that spectrum, you actually do have a dual role, I think, uh, as, a, as an agent. And I would argue that MFS is of the size and caliber and quality to actually be in the sort of gray zone of, mm. of actually, we're certainly big enough to have an influence. We have, again, we have the luxury of only owning the things that we really, really like. We're a pure active manager. We're very fundamental. We're very bottom up. We're extremely long term. Therefore, we're likely to own in size the things that we like and we want to own for a very long time. We're likely to understand those companies well. That knowledge compounds through time and puts us in a great position to have saliency when it when we think about what is the uh, the availability for us to institute change or think about the transformation mm. that is likely to happen across multiple industries. So I think we probably do have that, but we have to kind of balance those two objectives. Not everyone is has that sort of obligation sort of yeah. thrust and that duty sort of thrust uh, upon them. But I think what Carol is sort of instigating and uh, Alex Edmonds talked about, you know, what is in your hand? What is in, and I, I, I sort of really love that sort of ending question of, of what is in your gift to give to, to others. I think everyone's self-reflecting on that and being able to think about how could I, in my seat, my role, be able to influence for a better, bigger outcome in the future. Yeah. One of the other things that I often think we sort of grapple with that is in this and again I'm not sure that I've landed on the precise position um, but just as a thought experiment I think sometimes we get really hung up on single versus double financial materiality in our industry mm. single materiality is often seen as a safe haven for that fiduciary duty that how are we maximizing long-term risk-adjusted returns for the end saver and double materiality is often seen as the domain of impact players of sort of actually wanting to, is that scary? Is that stepping beyond what is a narrow definition of fiduciary duty in some markets? Obviously, other markets have interpreted a much broader sense of fiduciary responsibility. I actually think, again, back to sort of false dichotomies or, or kind of red herrings or mental traps that we can kind of fall into. Yeah. I think if you're thinking long term enough, there isn't a difference between single and double materiality. Yeah, the two collide. You, yeah. you can't separate the system that is going to have to generate those outcomes from the outcomes that you want to generate if you're discounting cash flows from 20 years back into the present or yeah. thinking long term and again we know this from benjamin graham and warren but you know most of the returns to any business are really in its out years not in the next kind of one to two years so yeah um i think the more that we embrace a genuine long-term mindset which is really difficult and that's i think one of carol's core messages is how do we actually really think long-term and not just claim that we're long-term, but continue to incent a system that is actually acting on more and more short-term impulses um, every go. I think that would actually do away with a lot of the confusion yeah. that we currently face. Yeah, yeah. Have you been able to play the bigger game in your role specifically? How have you thought about that? Do you have any things that you think about where you've tried to initiate that in your work as global head of sustainability strategy? 
Sure. So we actually have some trainers come in and do a bigger game training. So I think I'm the person that's gone through the bigger game training, the second most in the entire organization. I've gone through it five times. So I was really bad at it the first four. No, I've done it with different teams. So I've done it uh, as part of our management committee. I've done it as part of global distribution. Um, I sit on our president's council and, and in the sustainability team. One of the things about the bigger game sort of training or being able to play a bigger game is actually embracing the fact that we have to step out of our comfort zone. So this gets to where sort of Carol is and has been for a time. We can all stick to the very narrow definition and the very safe definition of of where we are today and, mm. and, the, and our job roles and what's in our job description. Yeah. Or you can start to take some actions that are congruent with that, but also with a more compelling purpose, right? So there are sort of, and they move you around an actual physical board. What is the compelling purpose? What are some of those gulp moments? How do you think about your allies in the space? And what are the bold actions that you're then prepared to take as a result? So I'll touch on a couple. I think it's really helped to reframe a compelling purpose and vision for the team um, internally. You can comment on that too, George, about what is it that we're here to ultimately do and the role that we play, not as leaders, just within our own organization, but also within the industry at large. And of course, again, we're not trying to overclaim our role or our significance or importance in that. This isn't an ego trip, but the allies is actually super important. So, you know, I'm really, really proud of sort of taking taking that bigger game approach and that lens and stepping out and saying, what would it take to engage with world-class academics, with world-class NGOs, collaboratives, with some of our peers in the industry that we would otherwise compete with in order to kind of raise our game and move us all collectively to the next level. So the work we've been doing with um, the Oxford Rethinking Performance Group, the work we've been doing with the with MIT around aggregate confusion, the work we've done in various collaboratives, be it under the auspices of the PRI or Ceres or the IIGCC or the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. So I think we've really tried to step up and step into some of those collaboratives and make sure that in every case, we're learning from those peers, we're humble and we're open-minded about the things that are outside of our immediate echo chamber. But we're also contributing as much as possible and we're putting our best people in, in those positions that can contribute and, and add something different, add some cognitive diversity, add something to those different conversations. And that has really helped elevate us and take some pretty bold action. So I think about our commitment to net zero, I think about our human rights policy, I think about some things that sort of three or four years ago, if you'd said MFS is going to commit 92% of its AUM to achieving net zero by 2050 under a certain framework, I think um, people would have been very, very surprised by that. In the end, once you have your allies and you have the systems in place and you have the compelling vision and purpose in place mm. and people understand, that was actually weirdly one of the easiest decisions that we had to make. It was it was a well-vetted and thoroughly investigated decision, but ultimately, actually, a broad swathe of the organization felt extremely comfortable about the kinds of commitments that we were going to make and really excited about moving towards what yeah. that objective really looked like. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned uh, external partnerships there, and one of those is with Eurasia Group. So we had Shari on uh, for episode three, and uh, it was interesting to hear her external perspective and how she frames it slightly differently. But this idea of embracing complexity, that's how we, we term it in, internally. And she thinks it about, uh, about it as kind of there or terms it as being like no one size fits all. So there's a lot of black and white. There's a lot of nuance. You, in that episode, you touched on biodiversity. You spent quite a long time on climate, but also on biodiversity. So 
it feels like, particularly at the PRI that we were at last month, that biodiversity is going to be a big topic for investors going forward, but it's still kind of at the start of its journey. Um, where do you think we are on biodiversity um, and what do you think investors really need to be paying attention to? What are the biggest challenges there? Of all the places in the sustainability landscape, as a personal confession, this is probably where my heart goes the most and where I, if I had the complete freedom I would spend all of my time thinking about. So I think this is one of the most significant and material issues um, that we are going to encounter. But I also think it's one of the hardest things for us to grapple with as an industry. So yes, you're right. I think it's coming up fast up the learning curve. We've got some really important sort of pseudo regulation coming in mm. uh, with the task force for nature related financial disclosures that will be sort of that is in place. Uh, we've got the ISSB that is adopting some of those frameworks. So yes, we're likely to see the conversation ratchet up really, really fast. And if we thought that actually the the gap between Paris in 2015, TCFD, the climate related financial disclosures in 20, sort of 2017, to where we are today, and the trillions of dollars that yeah. are committed to net zero, felt quite fast for the industry within the space of eight years. I feel like this is going to actually be a much shorter hockey stick mm. of, of adoption. That being said, let's just pause for a second. In climate, we have a single currency that is universally accepted as not being perfect but good enough yeah it's accepted by the scientific community this is obviously co2e carbon carbon dioxide equivalents scientific community universally accepted as being sort of material to climate change and human human caused climate change we can disagree about the sort of the impact factor and and what that means for future warming and what future mean but generally speaking there is a huge consensus across the academic community scientific community investment community that this measure matters. There's mm. a single currency. There's a way of measuring it. We can think about scope one, scope two, and yes, scope three is far from perfect. And and we're sort of moving towards sort of some of those issues. I think about um, natural capital, and again, my my thinking is constantly moving on this and spending a lot of time on it. Um, there are five domains that we need to care about. There's air, land, water, flora, and fauna. Right. Mm. So instead of just one area you've actually got five things that you need to simultaneously care about yeah. and each one of those has at least three or four kind of key metrics that you should care about uh, if you want to measure the quality of air or land or water or flora or fauna mm. therefore you're already at 20x the complexity of climate and that's hugely simplifying so probably still failing the einstein test of too yeah. simple yeah. So this is going to be incredibly hard. If you have a very um, prescriptive regulatory regime, say, for example, in the EU, that is likely to want to see the exact metrics and the formulae that everyone's using, we're not ready yet. That the, It's so nascent in the industry. And again, there are some really phenomenally talented people in our industry. I'm not trying to do them a disservice. They are working really, really hard on making this much easier for investors. And we talk to some of them all the time. And if anyone's listening and is, is working hard on this, then we would love to hear from you. The starting point being 20x more complicated is interesting. This is another one where there's a pit that we could fall into. If you over anchor to simple financial materiality in the short term, mm -hmm. it is not as obvious that the right thing to do to protect the oceans, for example, on life on, life on water, is a financially material short-term consideration in that single financial material. Yet we know it's an important and the right thing to do for long-term returns. So this is another one where it's going to sort of stress test 
our ability to really think long term yeah. and to really understand what we mean by financial materiality in that context. So I think it's going to be really confronting to some of those kind of initial assumptions that we made as stepping stones towards this journey of this idea of setting aside values and what we know to be right normatively with value and what we know to mm. be right sort of economically. So I think those things are going to have to collide when we think about natural capital, but it is the the next big wave I think that's coming and it's going to dwarf climate change in mm. terms of its significance and impact. Let's move on to Alex's episode and grow the pie. There's lots that we could talk about here, but we're both big fans and I thought it might not be that interesting if we just fanboy him for the whole of this <laughs> section. So um, I was trying to think about something that um, maybe I take a different stance on. And there, there were a few things and I thought it was interesting that you um, challenged him on a couple of areas of, of his thinking and his work. And for me, I was thinking about this just yesterday, actually. So one of the things that he said was that companies shouldn't be praised for doing something on ESG any more than they should be on any other areas of intangibles like management quality or innovation. And I think generally that is right. And we, as you talked about before, we don't want to carve ESG, a genuine ESG out of something different or special. Um, all investors should care about it. But when I was thinking about it yesterday, the thought that came to me was, I think there are some E exceptions to that. So if we think about the nine planetary boundaries from the Stockholm Resilience Center, those are ecological ceilings that once you go past those tipping points, it's effectively impossible in any meaningful timescale to go back. That for me is very different to, it's terrible for those 150,000 people at Kodak who lost their job that Alex mentioned because management didn't foresee the technological change that was coming and the start of the digital era. And that is a problem, but those people ultimately, a lot of them can go and get another job. But if we pass a genuine ecological boundary that you can't go back from and there's this regime shift, then that is a lot of trouble that's caused. That's a huge issue for millions of people for potentially a very, very long time. So I was thinking, I think that that generally is true. This might be the exception that proves the rule. But there are some things like novel entities or climate change or biodiversity loss that for me, I wonder if actually we should praise companies more for doing well or doing less bad on those on those specific areas. Now there's two different lenses, there's societal lens and then there's kind of investors, maybe there's three, then there's companies themselves. I'd love to gauge your thoughts on that. Do you think that there's any legs in that? This is a very new kind of uh, line of thinking for me. Uh, what, what do you think? It's interesting, isn't it? And the exciting thing about our job and our industry and, and our part in that in that part of the industry is there's always new lines of thinking. So mm. I think you know, it's really important that we sort of critically re-examine our ideas, something that you and I talk about a lot is uh, Adam Grant's work around sort of rethinking. So I like the idea that Alex started with, which is we should be proportionate in our praise and our blame of companies and not put ESG in a kind of special place. It's so important that it should just be fundamental. And if it's fundamental, we should treat it with the same level of, of you know, hysteria yeah. uh, that we would have over any uh, any fundamental factor. Again, living in the in the real world and, and understanding how the real economy can very quickly transform and shape around a particular narrative and how much intellectual property or intangible value there is attached to some of these companies, these things can escalate really, really fast. So mm -hmm. we have to be paying attention to, to where some of those things are. So I'm not sure I have uh, too much of a counter view. I do like the fact that we should be proportionate in that. I was speaking at an event uh, last week 
with uh, a professor that we've worked very, very closely with at MIT. And he had a really, really interesting turn of phrase. This is Professor Roberto Rigobon at MIT, who uh, was part of the team that wrote Aggregate Confusion, which is a paper that many people will understand and will probably come across. And we've been working with him and his team around Aggregate Confusion 2.0. And he said something that really made me laugh and made the audience laugh. He said, you know, we are really forgiving in some things in our industry and really merciless when it comes to ESG for some reason. So he, he used the example of if a company in a really hard to abate sector has gone through the work and set a science-based target, but misses its short-term one-year CO, you know, scope one number yeah. by one kind of turn of CO2E, the, you know, the industry kind of loses its mind, right? And will vilify and will demonize that company and claim they're not doing enough and claim it's greenwashing and look to kind of delist and deplatform it. The example that he used was central bankers miss their inflation target by about 8% and nobody blinks, right? And it's sort of like accepted that they can sort of say, well, you know, we measure these things in decades and as, mm. as we should and we mm. do. So he said, it's really funny that we're merciless when it comes to things that we understand so poorly and yet so forgiving when it's things that we've been doing for hundreds of years, mm. right? That really made me think as well about sort of our role, my job, uh, how we think about this, how we communicate to clients and, and how we do that, to how do we do that in a proportionate way, but how do we also make sure that we have the same levels and standards that we have for sustainability that we have to do other things. A stream of thought that I've been having recently that again could be controversial is the concept of additionality and whether additionality is too high-minded a concept and too high a bar that we place on ESG mm. that we don't place on anything else yeah. in, in our investment world or in our personal world. And yet the concept of opportunity cost is one that's incredibly well understood by economists. I, I studied economics at A-level and it's one of the first things that you learn is about mm. opportunity cost. And I wonder if additionality is actually opportunity cost in a slightly different disguise, but held to such a high bar in the ESG or impact space that we wouldn't really need it to pass that threshold in any other space at all. So again, still thinking about that, but mm. again, it's one of those things that comes up often when we think about climate modeling or scenario analysis or, or understanding the role of different metrics or gauges or what, what actions we want people to take. Mm. But we, we use opportunity cost in, in other roles, yeah. but we don't use additionality in its purest form mm. uh, in, in other spaces. So anyway, just something I've been thinking about, of, do we hold something in the ESG space to a much higher standard or lower yeah. standard than we do elsewhere. Is there anything else that you've changed your mind on over the last year or so in relation to uh, sustainable investing? Yes, all the time. I think some of the thinking around single versus double materiality, understanding time horizons, I give a tremendous amount of credit to our clients, the consultants, the, the interactions that I, I have you know, outside the four walls of MFS for really influencing my thinking around the role of public markets, the secondary markets. And so, again, adopting, there's that word again, but adopting more nuanced take on the power of exclusion or engagement. So a, a stream of consciousness that we've had for a while, but it really helped crystallize for me this year and sort of alter my view is what is the role of sort of fresh capital versus secondary capital mm but actually what's the signaling value of exclusions? So again, talking to people that maybe have a different philosophy than ours, but that do pursue exclusion as their main pathway to understand and impact sustainability in the broadest sense. Sitting down and understanding their perspective has actually been really helpful to understand. And, and actually I think we can achieve that signaling in other ways that I think of as more germane to how we are built and what we can do in the way that we create value. 
but that's an angle that I hadn't really considered before. So mm. yes, absolutely. And again, there's so much great work happening around sectoral-based pathways um, in the realm of climate or the just transition and how we square sort of social and and, and climate and natural capital and how we solve the trilemma. Mm. I think he's constantly evolving on some of those topics. And again, I'm kind of increasingly convinced that it's at the intersection of those ideas, which is where the greatest value differentiation yeah opportunity and risk is likely to be found and we have to kind of keep moving towards those things rather than be you know exceptional in just one of those areas switching gears a little bit for episode five we had Mahesh on um, and he was talking uh, about emerging markets and the differences uh, and then even on ESG um, so some of them were just kind of generic differences between expectations around developed markets versus emerging markets um, and ESG, how it differs, how diff- how there might be different weights um, that you might apply to those, and depending on asset class as well. So fixed income is just a very different beast. One thing that I thought was interesting, so 10 years ago or something, I remember we both read a book called Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond, and we talked about how we thought it was great, it was really interesting, it was kind of an academic piece of work, and one of the main tenets is that one of the key things that you need for a very successful society is strong institutions. So you can um, supplant or you can take democracy, for example, you can go and put it in the Middle East like uh, the states did and thought, well, democracy is a great system, it gives everyone a voice. And then they try to implant democracy in a place that doesn't have the shared understanding and the collective ideals and the strong institutions of what are required for a democracy to work. And I'd, I'd read this kind of theoretically, but it was interesting in the Mahesh episode how he said kind of governance really sets the foundations for a country to develop. And it's particularly important in in all countries, but really in order to be able to develop the S, uh, so uh, strong civil institutions and stable society, and then from there you get to the E. But it was I, I liked how it was a practical example. And even from the back testing, so they said, this is, it's not just our ideas about, I think that probably G is the most important factor. They instead have run some regressions and found that probably G is the thing that has led to, of E, S, and G, uh, G is probably the most important factor. So I like to see a kind of practical real-world example of something that we just read and talked about. Any key takeaways from that episode for you? Yeah, no, I think it's really important that we test our intuitions and look hard and cold at data where we have it and where it's high quality. So to your point, we can have an intuition that governance is, is incredibly important. I'll give, mm. maybe give a counterexample in a second, but actually going back and testing actually how has that affected in that case spread levels in fixed income yeah. and what can we say about the signal and the quality of the signal and what does that tell us again our job is to price forward-looking risk and return not to worry about sort of what happened over the last 10 years but the last sort of 10 to 20 years or again however long we've got quality data for can better inform us and better guard against some of the biases that we have as investors and as kind of human beings and, and suffering from all of the things that we, that we do so, you know, an intuition that we might have um, personally might be that climate change is incredibly important and, and that those countries that have, uh, you know, embraced sort of climate, actually, when you backtest and you, you do the models, hasn't actually had any bearing on the quality of uh, sovereign bond spreads or the quality mm. of returns or doesn't mean to say it won't in future. Yeah. And we can make a few future focused assumption on that. But I think, again, back to where we have to be rigorous and robust to some extent around 
the you know what our intuitions are and what does it even mean for a company to to embrace that yeah um, would be really powerful um in my travels like a dear friend of mine now um she's uh, she's a governor for the S- S- south african central bank and um we were at this, a similar event and we ended up speaking and ended up speaking and again it really illuminated for me how whilst some of us particularly in the markets where some of this has been invented so there is a little bit of a risk of sort of not quite cultural imperialism but something close to it you know if you if you're from the US or the UK or Europe mm. one of the biggest risks that you face is likely to be transition risks of climate yeah if you are in an emerging economy or you're a small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean physical risk is going to be pretty important to you right yeah. uh, versus some of the transition risks that you might face and your mitigants and the way that you adapt to that if you're a commodity rich country and you're an exporter versus a commodity impoverished country or an importer of those commodities again the way that you embrace the net zero transition is going to be different right mm. if it's easy to read the IEA report and say yeah we should have no new net thermal coal mm. right there are 750 million people in the world that have no access to steady power today and that would be 2 billion people if we switched off thermal coal tomorrow right so again i'm not saying that thermal coal should be on forever for everyone but i can certainly understand how india and china say well i'm not going to put my entire country or most of my country into energy poverty as a result of adopting this policy i'm going to wait for that industrialization or the renewables or the technology to be there before i make something like that kind of commitment so again i think it can be easy from our own seat looking the way and you know feeling the risks or feeling Mm. the, the weight of of certain types of risks and taking a myopic perspective and getting out there and actually broadening those horizons and and understanding that it's not quite as straightforward mm. as what is impacting me is the same thing as someone that impacts someone in South Africa or India or China or Australia or the US is actually really really important that again we need to sort of thread some of those issues uh, uh, through it so I agree strength of institutions quality of education rule of law, like all of those things that again intuitively we know now are being backed by you know evidence that that matters for investors for over our investable time horizon but taking some of those things and making sure that we're not just sort of supplanting from one particular set of factors and variables and cultural norms to another is also really really important and that's where having colleagues and collaboratives on the ground in some of those regions that can really challenge your thinking Mm. is super powerful yeah so you mentioned a few of the different variables or factors that make up our emerging market sovereign characteristic there for SFDR. So there's lots of changes going on with SFDR now. So a big review and um, Europe was very brave and did something very important going first. But I think it's fair to say that SFDR is far from perfect. And now it looks like they want to have a big revisal of the approach of SFDR from disclosure maybe to labeling. But what do you think is going to be the future of SFDR and uh, sustainable finance regulation more generally? I mean, there's two possible answers. There's what do I think it will be and what would I hope it to be? <laughs> and maybe I'll, I'll try and answer both. Like you said, and this isn't meant to be a sort of damning indictment of SFDR or any, any regulation. This is an incredibly complex space and mm. all regulation will have some unintended consequence or byproduct of it. I think SFDR, having just said that I'm not going to hopefully be too pejorative, SFDR was intended to be anti-greenwashing and stamping out greenwashing which is essential and something that we need we need high quality disclosure in order to really understand the risks opportunities and the processes that investors are taking sort of became a lightning rod for greenwashing unfortunately Mm. because it set out the rules of the game and some people will game that system if if you tell them exactly how they can qualify to be light green or dark green particularly if you compound that problem with 
a taxonomy that is otherwise incredibly hard to kind of qualify for, and the pressure placed on um, the financial services industry to promote ESG product and then to have to kind of qualify using SFDR. So it sort of yeah. became a sort of pseudo requirement and a pseudo labeling regime because of the sister regulation sort of around it. What we are lobbying for, what I hope for is the SFDR. So this is where I hope it will be, but I'm also where I think it's going to go. I would hope that it remains a disclosure regime. I think that's critically important that we have a high quality disclosure regime. If it becomes about labels, then I think it actually diminishes the quality of what we are actually doing and limits our thinking and sort of forces us to be put in to kind of pigeonholes or boxes. And we're never going to invent all of the categories that we really need. So, for example, when SFDR was first conceived, there is no transition category, for mm. example. And now that would be common sense. Right? Yeah. So when the SDR, UK regulator, yeah. SDR, mm. one of you know one of their categories very clearly is, is sort of transition finance. And that, that's kind of clearly the space in which we play. So it's kind of close to our heart. So again, in, in five years time, there's going to be something I believe that's going to be really obvious then that probably wasn't as obvious now. Mm. Can regulation keep up with that level of change without creating all sorts of unintended consequences? I think that's really difficult. Where I think it's going to go is probably it's going to do both. Um, the, the intelligence on the ground is it will likely remain disclosure-based but have a strong labeling component to it because the regulator has acknowledged and recognized that whether it likes it or not, market participants in the main, not MFS, but in the main, are treating it like a labeling regime mm. and therefore they have to understand and govern for that. I think we need to walk back some of the precision that we pretend to have around some of the issues. You know, we can talk about scope three or we can talk about biodiversity or we can talk about supply chain risks mm. where the data coverage is so poor today yeah. that it actually is potentially misleading to have disclosure against things that are very very low quality it's something you and i think about all the time yeah. when we're reporting out to clients we want there to be really high veracity of that data we want it to be authentic we want it to be decision useful that we have certain principles that we want to hold to mm. and unfortunately esg data is improving from a very very low base we are not over the, some of those critical thresholds yet across some of the metrics that we would love to be able to measure. So mm. I believe we'll get there. Can the regulation sort of inspire and move us towards that and create the operating conditions where that becomes absolutely fundamental and necessary? Yes. Do we need to kind of jump to the end solution now and be really precise about every single metric that we should be measuring? I think that is probably a bit of a false economy mm. as well. So I think we are learning as we move through. It looks like the UK regulator is going to jump up the learning curve a little bit. I know the SEC is paying very, very close attention. Monetary Authority of Singapore, the Australian yeah. regime, they're, they're all paying very, very close attention to what is happening in Europe and not blind to the fact that, again, like you said, Europe, to its credit, moved faster, was an early adopter in this space, is likely to kind of have gone down some cul-de-sacs mm. that maybe it needs to kind of veer back from and not everyone needs to kind of go down that same mm. journey. Yeah. Well, lots of change coming. We'll continue to watch this space. So the final guest episode was Michelle, um, and you focused on DE&I. One of the most interesting questions for me is how do we broaden the talent pool, and what is the role of MFS finance more generally? I think that's one of the most challenging parts of it. We can have some kind of internal policies about, uh, say, blind resume reviewing and all of that good stuff, but ultimately the root cause of the problem is much further downstream. So how do we kind of generally ensure that we broaden the talent pool, and uh, is there a role for MFS or finance more generally in that? Yes to both. So we as an employer and MFS, or whether that's any financial institution, 
I think owe it to everyone to think much more broadly about the types of skills and the talent pools that we fish in. I know that lots of people think about that. Hmm. I'm convinced that the so-called soft skills are actually really, really hard and actually really hard to um, inculcate in people, but those are going to be the things that count over the future. You know, if everyone's got an AI machine in their pocket, the hard technical skills are going to be commoditized to some extent. The kind of creative, the influential, the sort of communication, the ability to kind of build trust, rapport with other individuals, to be able to think innovatively and creatively into the future, those are the skills that are going to be the most prized. And those are ones that we probably spend the least amount of time yeah. teaching our children or, or thinking about across across the education spectrum. So, yes, I think we need to make sure that we're optimizing more for those skills than a narrower set of skills that maybe we have in the past. And, and again, I know that we and many other organizations are definitely moving down that track very fast. I think we also have a duty to society. So in the UK, for example, it always struck me as really odd. And this is also true in the US. We have one of the largest financial centers in the world, in, in London, mm. where we're sitting right now. And yet we have one of the lowest rates of financial literacy in our country, right? So you've got this, one of the only things that the UK exports is financial services. And yet we seem to have one of the lowest rates of financial literacy uh, across across the world, right? So when people are asked kind of very basic questions about sort of budgeting, finance, savings. And so... Bridging that has actually been an incredibly rewarding thing for people at MFS. So I've seen, I've taken people into schools and we've done financial literacy training for, for children as young as sort of six to eight, where you think, well, they're never going to understand about budgeting. But actually, all the research suggests that that's the right age where habits start to really form around mm-hmm. money and actually opens their eyes to different career possibilities. And so you start to inspire a generation that might, not, might have thought that financial services was so far out of reach. Yeah. And they have the image in their head of, of an investment banker or someone that is, you know, super proficient at math, like wears a suit all the time, comes into the city, is part of this network, and they don't realize that when they come in, or sometimes when they come into to our offices, that actually, you know, lots of people found their way here through all weird and wonderful different ways, and, and actually mm. is accessible to people. They just don't know that it's that it's there for them. So, I think we can break down those barriers. I think the firm can do that. I think we are moving towards that space the way that we and it's actually really rewarding and engaging it's like a triple win you know it's a win for mfs yeah we get better talent it's a win for our current employees because they feel so good about their vocation and what they do and they feel inspired when they walk into a school environment and it's a win for broader society if we Mm. can kind of do that so yeah i think it's it's a no-brainer to move towards that space yeah yeah so my last question for you is one that you threaded throughout and it's what what is your wisdom what what should i do differently on monday introspection is one of the hardest skills and often really overlooked in the in our in the kind of professional services industry so we're a knowledge-based industry thinking about the condition of your thinking and your mind seems to me to be a really really important thing so if all anyone did starting next monday was spend 10 to 15 minutes whether it's meditation or yoga or breath work or you hate all of those terms and you just spend some time thinking and reassessing your thoughts and your decision making from the prior week I think it would actually force you to confront some of those underlying beliefs that may no longer serve you some of those habits or routines that no longer work or could be improved upon or some of those ideas that you could carry forward into your team into your organization into the broader industry or the or society at large my bit of wisdom would be spend a little bit of time really reflecting on the own quality of your thinking because that is likely to determine your happiness and your success not only in your career but also the impact that you can make throughout your life 
Yeah, I love that. I'm actually just reading Clear Thinking by Shane Parrish now, mm. and that's one of the big takeaways that I've had. He recommends, like, if there's one thing that you can really do, this kind of force multiplier idea is to take breaks and to, you don't even have to be thinking during them. So it's great to reflect as well, but just having some time where you're not constantly consuming new information. And I think for me, I think for people like us, we have kind of similar personality types where we love encountering new ideas, talking to new people, and I'm just constantly reading or listening to a podcast or a book. But it's certainly a working point for me that I'm trying to ensure that I actually take some time out to do nothing. And uh, it's been powerful in the last few weeks that I've tried it. So Fish, thanks so much for letting me ask the questions this time and uh, put you in the hot seat. I think that will be really interesting for listeners to hear your perspective on a lot of that stuff that we heard from uh, the great guests that we had, but it's it's great to hear from your purview as well. So thank you for having me on and great. taking the time. Well, thanks for the questions. It was fun to be here.